I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. River water squished in my ski boots and snow collected on my paddle blade. As the sun dipped behind the mountain, we skinned uphill, bushwhacking in the general direction of the mountain's summit. The temperature is around zero degrees Fahrenheit, plus wind chill. If we find a flat camp spot soon, we won't have to use headlamps to stomp out our tent spot. We are completely alone on a multi-day paddle-to-ski-to-paddle mission in the coast mountains of British Columbia. The temperature continued to drop and the wind continued to blow. Both very physical reminders that in the mountains, surviving the night is not a cliche, no matter how close to home you are. Squamish is nestled in Canada's coast mountains, halfway between Vancouver and Whistler. It's a special mountain town where the surrounding peaks and rivers descend into the Pacific Ocean, a natural outdoor playground where you can step out your door and do just about any outdoor activity. Mountain biking, paragliding, climbing, skiing, kiting, whitewater kayaking. The grades vary from easy to hard, but it's the accessibility of exploration that feeds the mindset which is often focused on how far, fast, high, or deep can I go in a day. My boyfriend Rock and I are whitewater kayakers, and kayakers typically don't like carrying kayaks. Any expedition paddler will agree that the worst part of a kayaking multi-day is carrying a 45-plus pound boat through thick forest, across slippery rocks, or up steep riverbanks. After a friend lent me a whitewater-specific pack raft, I learned firsthand that they can handle some decent whitewater and offer an alternative to lugging around a heavy boat. These inflatable single-person mini rafts cannot run technical class 5 rapids or drop waterfalls, but they weigh less than 10 pounds, and when deflated and rolled, are transformed into this packable bundle slightly bigger than a Bubba mini keg. Kind of perfect for exploration and multi-sport adventures, I thought, and I started hatching trip ideas. My first pack rafting multi-day, a close-to-home winter adventure. Cloudburst Mountain is a sprawling granite mastiff, marking the southernmost point of the Squamish-Chequemish Divide. It's where two rivers feed fresh snowmelt into the Pacific Ocean, about 40 miles away. My plan was simple enough. Put onto the Chequemish River 25 miles south of Whistler and pack raft down the mellow whitewater to the base of Cloudburst Mountain. Then roll up the rafts, tie them to our packs, and ski tour up the 6,000-foot peak. Then ski down the other side and drop our pack rafts into the Squamish River to paddle 20 miles to Howe Sound and the Pacific Ocean. Ski packing, pack skiing, multi-sport fun. The route would take four days and occur entirely within cell service. 
I pitched the idea to Rock and our buddy Andrew, a pack rafting pro, who were both keen. A testament to their sanity or friendship? I'm still not sure. At 7 a.m. on an exceptionally cold Tuesday in March, our friend dropped us off on the side of the iconic Sea to Sky Highway, about three quarters of the way from Vancouver to Whistler. With hoods up and gloves on to shield us from the icy wind, we trudged through hip-deep snow to the edge of the Chequemus River. We stuffed tents and sleeping bags into our pack raft tubes and inflated them into whitewater rafts. We lashed skis, poles, and a splitboard to the exterior and paddled off. Navigating a river in winter meant finding dry lines, and we did our best to avoid the river's spray as we paddled past psychedelic ice formations and massive frozen logs. We were slightly soggy by midday when we swapped paddles for poles and attached our dripping deflated boats to our backpacks. We stepped into skis and started the long skin up Cloudburst Mountain. As I moved uphill, I tried to figure out how to classify this trip. Cloudburst is a popular, close-to-town ski touring spot, so this couldn't be called an expedition. And yet, we were self-sufficient, carrying our own gear and sleeping in a tent in Arctic outflow winter winds. We were on a meandering path through the mountains, so it didn't feel like just a trip from point A to point B either. It was an adventure experiment. Friends embarking on a journey of questionable outcome, using skis and pack rafts to explore water as a solid, a liquid, and every state in between. We were getting to know a mountain, one that people stare at from office windows downtown Squamish. My focus wasn't trying to be the fastest, go the highest, challenge any extremes, and we went to sleep that first night like excited kids squished together in a small tent, listening to snow pattering on the tent fly. Snowflakes falling on my face startled me awake. Didn't I fall asleep in a tent? I opened my eyes to discover that the overnight snowfall had smothered our tent, pressing the fly against the tent walls. Every sleeping exhalation had turned to frost on the ceiling, which was now falling as wet snow on our sleeping bags. With no way to dry our wet gear, we packed up, ate some hot oats, and started uphill again. As we crunched upwards, the clouds limited visibility. We realized we wouldn't be able to summit and ski down today. We needed much clearer conditions to safely navigate Cloudburst's cornice-crested peak. So we would be camping near the tree line, in wet sleeping bags. As we planked up the mountain, our mild, close-to-home adventure was becoming more exciting, more challenging. The consequences of the elements don't change based on proximity to civilization. A mountain is a mountain, and the climate she creates is literally the law of the land. To really know a mountain, you have to spend time on it, in all weather conditions and all times of day. We set camp early, picking a spot in a sparse stand of gangly western hemlocks, with a shrouded view of Cloudburst's peak. As I melted snow for dehydrated black bean soup, the clouds parted for intermittent views of the valley below 
and the expanse of mountains visible to the east and west of us. Well-known peaks like Black Tusk, Garibaldi, and Tantalus grabbed my attention, but it was the seemingly never-ending blanket of jagged, snow-covered peaks beyond them that represented true wilderness and left me spellbound. In contrast, the view of the sprawling subdivisions in the valley below also fascinated me somehow. After paddling and skiing for two days, with only trees and snow to be seen, we were still so close to town. Wiggling into my moist sleeping bag with much of my ski gear on, those contradicting views kept coming back to me. Mountains and town, wilderness and civilization. My mind jumped from wondering what it would take to roam through that expanse of mountain peaks to wondering what my friends were doing right now, all warm and cozy in their homes in Squamish. The frigid wind that was our fierce adversary as we lay in a tent on a mountainside couldn't touch them in the protection of their homes. As a strong gust pressed the tent against our bodies, the three of us shuffled and squirmed, preparing for a long, cold night. The sun drew us out of the tent early, and a bluebird day greeted us. Steep skin tracks turned to boot picking to reach the top of Cloudburst. Snapping some pictures and slapping some high fives, our time on the summit was short. Tucked away from the wind, we snacked and watched the Squamish River snaking down the valley into the Pacific Ocean. With water on our minds, we followed the path of the water cycle. We experienced different textures under our skis, from wind-slabbed crust in the alpine near the summit to soggy sun-cooked mashed potato snow in the dense, rain-fed glades. Snow floated through the air after a powder turn, and water cascaded down steep mountain streams beside us. When the fast and fun logging road switchbacks became bare gravel, we shouldered skis and boards and walked the last few miles to the riverside, where the reward of whitewater waited. Arriving at the river felt like coming home. It also tested our will to keep braving the relentless cold wind when we intersected a well-used back road. We could have easily asked a local fisherman for a ride back to town, but the satisfaction of unrolling a pack raft carried up and over a mountain for over 13 miles erased any thoughts of retreat. Drifting downstream, the riverbank zipped by while we were pulled to the Pacific. In spots, the river ran just meters from roads, homes, and the Squamish First Nation community. But the massive driftwood logs and wild river braids made it feel remote. Through rapids, swifts, and fast-moving water, we reveled in the ease of traveling by liquefied snow. We didn't need our paper map anymore because the river knew where to go. Stuffing the map in my pack, I realized how our navigation over the past few days had been devoid of technology. Because we were just outside of town, we used large landmarks like drainages and the occasional clear-cut swath to orient ourselves. I almost forgot I was carrying my cell phone. It just felt so light without screens and buttons, an increasingly unusual experience in the backcountry today. We hoped to gain a few degrees of warmth at sea level, but damp air and persistent wind blasted through the valley. We crouched partially inside an old-growth driftwood stump just so that we could boil water without the wind blowing the stove out. It was almost comical to think that just a few hundred meters away, on the other side of the river, people boiled water in kettles to make their morning coffee. 
As we flowed closer to town, those people started appearing on the banks, walking the riverside trails with kids on bikes or dogs off leash. It paid off to check tidal charts pre-trip, and we timed our transition from fresh water to salt water with the receding tide. Compared to other parts of our trip, the last leg was one of adventure fairy tales. A slight tailwind, the draw of the tide pulling us through the estuary, and a group of curious seals escorting us into the Pacific. The sun was on the horizon when we high-fived paddle blades and celebrated our snow-to-sea adventure. And as we pulled our pack rafts onto shore downtown Squamish, I wondered why more people don't do trips like this. Is the philosophy of adventure threatened by this expectation to go bigger, higher, wilder, or further? Each icy paddle stroke and every waterlogged step I took proved that I don't need a big budget, weeks of planning, pricey plane tickets, or fancy navigation technology to enjoy the backcountry. An adventure can be created from my current surroundings, from a local park or a simple stretch of river. My crazy idea to explore where snow turns to water and where water turns salty just needed crazy friends to join me. During those cold, exposed days on the Chequemus, Cloudburst, and Squamish, I relied on my outdoor skills and my teammates, letting the elements create the challenges. And I got to know how this well-known mountain behaves, in sunshine and after sunset, during high winds and on calm mornings. Simplicity is what made this adventure special. Paper maps and beef jerky, floating through snow and whitewater. It opened my mind to so many new backyard adventures. My name is Carmen Kuntz, and this is my short. Thank you, Carmen, for sharing your story. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Bradley Carter, Publish the Quest, Kai Engel, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists of Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song, and you can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Becca Cajal and edited by Cordelia Zars. Artwork and graphics by Anya Miller. Becca Cajal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cajal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Support comes from Kuat Racks. Their Ibex overlanding truck bed rack is made to handle substantial loads both on and off the grid. You can go anywhere with it. Seriously, constructed from lightweight yet durable aluminum, the black powder coat is made for all the nature you can throw at it. Available in seven different frame sizes to accommodate most truck models, the Ibex is engineered for adventure with versatile full and half-height configurations. For more details and to visualize your Ibex configuration, you should do this. It's super cool. It's a neat augmented reality program. Check it out. See what it would look like on your truck. It works super well. Visit Kuat.com, Kuat, B 
because you will absolutely love this overlanding truck bed rack.